Well, hey, good morning, New Life Fellowship. It is so good to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, if you're new, my name is Eric, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and uh, just really want to welcome you today. Uh, hopefully, you can join uh, join me for a meeting. Uh, we have the link there in our chat box. Please do sign up uh, to meet up with me. I would love to get to know you, as well as give you any information about the church uh, that you may have questions about. Uh, well, today uh, we are starting a brand new sermon series called The I Am, and I'm so, so excited for this sermon series. Uh, now, the reason why we entitled it I Am is because if you read through the Gospel of John, what you would have noticed, and one of the major features of the Gospel of John, is the I Am statements that Jesus makes. In fact, he makes exactly seven of these I Am statements. He says things like, I am the bread of life, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the true vine, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the resurrection, uh, I I am, I, I am the light of the world, and so on and so forth. And what Jesus is trying to do in these I am statements is if you remember in Exodus chapter 3, Moses sees the burning bush, God calls him to free the people of Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, and so Moses says, look God, who do I introduce you as? How do I introduce you to Pharaoh? And God says this, he says, Yahweh, which translated means, I am that I am. I am that I am. And so do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, look, I am the same as the person that said I am way back in Exodus chapter 3. I am that I am. In other words, Jesus is linking himself to the Father who is equal in substance, power, and might, and he's claiming himself to be God. And what we want to do for the next seven weeks leading up to Easter is we want to take these I am sayings and study them one by one and really reveal the attribute or the attribute of Jesus' divinity that he wants us to know about himself. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're seeking Christ, I'm so glad that you're worshiping with us today. I'm so glad that you're here for this sermon series. And please do stick with us for the next seven weeks as we explore the divinity of Christ. Now, one of the objections to Christianity that I hear quite often goes something like this. Well, Jesus probably never claimed to be God, Eric. Uh, Jesus probably lived his life as he normally did, but it's post-mortem that his disciples then created this, these stories about how he was divine, about how Jesus claimed to be divine. But Jesus would have never himself said that he was divine. Uh, in fact, uh, if Jesus heard uh, that he was divine, that, you know, that his disciples said these things about him, he himself would have been mortified. Well, in 2006, uh, Richard Bauckham, he's a New Testament scholar, he came out with a brand new book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And this book uh, rippled, made ripples throughout New Testament scholarship. It won one of the highest prizes for theological and religious writings called the Michael Ramsey Prize. And again, it made ripples throughout New Testament scholarship. And the reason why is because Richard Bauckham tears apart something that most uh, secular and atheist New Testament scholars used uh, to talk about the Gospels, which is something called form criticism. And just a sort of crash course on form criticism, uh, it's sort of the belief uh, that the, the stories contained in the Gospels uh, were corrupted through transmission. So sort of like the game of telephone, right? I tell one person something, that person tells somebody else, and throughout that process of transmission, the story is corrupted or the stories were flat out made up at some point. 
And yet, again, Richard Bauckham, in this book, destroys form criticism. He absolutely does away with this idea of form criticism. And in fact, makes the case that the stories in the gospel, the teachings, the miracles, all that happens in the gospel are indeed eyewitness testimonies that we can trust and accept today uh, uh, as actually have, having have happened. And one of the ways Richard Bauckham does this in the book is he actually tells us about the names in the Gospels. If you ever read through Mark or the Gospel of John, for example, what you'll notice is a lot of names are given. For example, Lazarus, Martha, Mary, these are names. And what the Gospel writers were trying to do, Richard Bauckham argues, is he's trying to send out footnotes. Right? In those days, they didn't have footnotes like we do in modern-day uh, research papers. But what they're doing is they're footnoting, and they're saying, look, if you want to talk to Mary or Martha, if you want to talk to Lazarus about this story that I wrote down, you can. They're still alive today. In fact, go talk to them. They, they live down the street. Uh, and we see this happening constantly throughout the early Christian life. In 1 Corinthians, for example, Paul says, look, there are 500 people that witnessed Jesus' resurrection. In fact, some of them are still alive today. You can go talk to them and ask them what they saw. They actually saw the risen Christ. And Richard Bauckham, again, through these names, shows that the stories here uh, are indeed eyewitness accounts that we can trust. Uh, and all this to say, what we're going to be studying today and for the next seven weeks is indeed a trustworthy eyewitness testimony of the events that happened on, the, on those days. And the claims Jesus made about his divinity are indeed accurate and true. And Jesus did say that he was God incarnate. And so I want us to start off with this quote from C.S. Lewis before we dive into this series, because I think as we dive into this series, what we're going to see is that we really have two choices. And C.S. Lewis is going to paint these two choices for us very, very clearly. Let me read from his famous work, Mere Christianity. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That's Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would, be a, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the, same, uh, with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either, okay, here's the choice now. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Whew. I want you to sit on that quote just for a moment. Because as we read the Gospel of John today, John chapter 6, especially Jesus makes this clear. What you're going to come to is a choice. After reading this passage, what you'll notice is this. Jesus is either a madman, a lunatic, or he truly is the Son of God. He is truly divine. There's no other choice. You can't say Jesus was a great moral teacher. He's not some pacifist who brought upon peace. No, either Jesus was a lunatic or Jesus was God incarnate. He's not some great moral teacher. And Christian, I want you to listen to me right now. I want you to pick up your heads for a moment or stop doing the dishes or st stop eating. But just listen to me here for a second, okay? You too have to make a choice as well. If Jesus says who he claims to be, if he is truly who he says he is to be, and he claims to be God, then you have no excuse to live the way we live. 
We have no excuse to live a half-hearted, lukewarm, uh, uh, just a lazy Christian life. We have no excuse. Why? Because if he is indeed God, and if these are indeed his words, these have to change our lives. This has to change the way we, we, we live and move and breathe in this world, friends, because if God is indeed real, and if he did indeed reveal himself in the person of Jesus Christ, then that's like a semi-truck coming at you at 60 miles an hour. It has to change your life, friends. And so I hope, whether you're seeking Christ or whether you're a believer today, I hope and I pray that this sermon series, I, I hope that it realigns your hearts and gets you to understand who Jesus said he really is, which is God himself. So let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 35 to 40, and then we're going to jump down to 53 uh, to 59, okay? John chapter 6, 35 to 40, and then 53 to 59, okay? Uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, although we're going to be studying the entire chapter. And the reason why is because if you know anything about the Gospel of John, the stories are very, very long. And um, we want to be concise and be able to get you uh, what it is um, that God wants to speak to us today. So if you're able at this time, would you rise? We do this out of honor and reverence to the word of God. Uh, I'll go ahead and read this for us. I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you could respond with thanks be to God, I'll pray for us and then I'll seat you after the reading of God's word. John chapter 6, verse 35 to 40, and then 53 to 59. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's jump down to verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Oh, Father, such extraordinary words from you. Lord, the difficult, difficult saying that you give to us today. And yet, Lord, as we process together through the guidance of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open up the eyes of those who are seeking you. And Lord, we pray, God, that you would help those who believe, God, see even clearer, Lord, your divinity, your majesty, your lordship, Lord, and that we would come to accept you not uh, just simply for who we want you to be, but for who you truly are. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we have three points as we normally do. The first point is this, who he is. Okay, that's the first point. The second point is who we want, and the last point is I am the bread of life. Who he is, who we want, and I am the bread of life. All right, so let's dive into our first point, who he is. 
right. Uh, Tim Keller, he's a pastor, author, apologist, theologian. He lives out in New York City. Uh, and he says this in one of his sermons. Uh, and I quote, disbelief is not the absence of faith. It is the presence of something else. Let me say that one more time. Disbelief is not the absence of faith. It is the presence of something else. Uh, you know, people often believe that the reason why people don't come to Christ or stop believing is because they lack something. They lack faith, for example. But what Tim Keller's arguing is not that they lack faith. It's rather that there's actually something present in their heart that's actually pushing out any sort of belief there is in Christ. So, for example, take a train, right? If a train is full of people, there's a presence of people. Well, to put on another person into that train is sort of impossible, right? You can't really get that person on. And in the same way, the reason why the heart can't believe is because there's already a, a, the presence of a belief already there in your hearts. Um, so, you know, in our household, for example, we've been trying to educate ourselves on the history of racism, for example. And uh, what did certain groups of people uh, do to imp- uh, oppress and enslave another group? And what could lead them to do such horrendous things, to really reject a whole group of people as human beings? And really, of course, what, what we came across is really this, right? That it's the belief about that group of people that then prevented them from accepting their humanity. It's the presence of a belief system uh, that was present in their hearts that then rejected the humanity of a whole group of people. Uh, and so, for example, uh, you know, my mother, she came and visited us this past week, and uh, I got to talking with my mother, and uh, we started talking about this issue of racism. And one of the things she confessed, sort of shamefully and regretfully, of course she no longer believes these things, was that when she was being raised in the 60s, her mother used to tell her that if you see anybody who has black skin color, that they are thugs, that they are um, uh, you know, dangerous, and that you shouldn't associate with them. And these were the kinds of things that were being taught to her as a young child. And of course now she recognizes the folly of those statements, and she of course repents of those statements, but nonetheless the presence of that belief system then prevented my mother from accepting the humanity of a whole group of people. Uh, And during the slave era in the United States, Americans believed that black people were dangerous. They were thugs and unintelligent. And it was because of the presence of this belief that they were then unable to accept the humanity of black people. Their preconceived notions of what black people are prevented them from seeing who black people actually are, humans, created in the image of God. Um, and, And so... Here's the reason why I'm bringing this up is because of this, right? The reason why people reject God is is sort of in the same fashion. The reason why people reject God is because they believe certain things about who God should be versus accepting him for who he is. It's the presence of a belief system that what this is what God should be like, and because they have this belief system about who God should be like, they then reject the real God for who he says he is. And we do this because, again, we have a presupposition about God. And the presence of that belief prevents us from hearing from God directly. This belief is not the absence of faith. It is the presence of something else, as Tim Keller says. Okay, so let's go to our passage, okay? Because we'll reveal this more in a second, okay? In our passage in John chapter 6, what you'll notice is Jesus does this amazing miracle. He feeds 5,000 people. But of course, scholars know that there were more people there. There was probably at least around 15,000, if not 20,000 people there. And at that time in history, it was impossible, literally impossible to feed 15,000 people like that. Uh, they didn't have restaurant-sized ovens. They didn't have the, the technology or the manufacturing ability to create all these different ovens to make all this bread, right? They didn't have all 
handle that. And so it would have been impossible to feed 15,000 to 20,000 people. And yet Jesus does this. He takes five bread, he takes two fish, and he breaks it. He multiplies it. And he feeds 15 to 20,000 people in his midst. And in fact, the people get so excited. They're like, yeah, this is the Messiah. He's the king. He's the one to come. Look what they say in verse 14. After the people saw the sign, that's the multiplying of the bread, Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So in other words, Jesus runs away. Jesus is like, I don't want to be king right now. Like, let's go run away for a second. And then when Jesus comes back, Jesus comes back, the people are still waiting for him. And so right before our passage, look at what Jesus says. Jesus says to them in verse 32, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then look what they say in verse 34. This is crazy, okay? Sir! They said, always give us this bread. Of course we want this bread. We'll never go hungry again. Give us this bread, sir, please. They love Jesus. Jesus is a rock star. We want more and more Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. But then Jesus says this in our passage in verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. And the people are like, uh, okay. Uh, that's kind of weird, but uh, okay, sure, you're the bread of life. You, you just made bread. You multiplied it. Great. Sure, you're the bread of life. And then Jesus is like, no, 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 really, really, I am the bread of life. Like uh, in Exodus, right, remember they ate manna? They ate uh, that bread? Well, I am that bread, and you have to eat me. And they're like, uh, okay, a little bit more weird, but uh, you know what? You multiply bread? Sure, fine, whatever. And then in verse 53 to 56, which is it? Um, uh, you know, let me go ahead and read this for us. This is what Jesus says, right? Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. And then to this the people are like, Uh-uh, you ain't, you ain't the Messiah no more. Nobody in the right mind would say that. How could you say that? You, you just fed us bread. You said you were going to give us eternal bread. Sure, we could believe that. We like that about you, Jesus. You, you say we'll never starve again, that we'll never go hungry, we'll never be thirsty. You're going to feed us bread. Great. We love that part of you, Jesus. But this eating your flesh and drinking your blood, like what are you talking about, man? Like, we can't accept this. Then in verse 66, look what they say. From this, time, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They couldn't accept Jesus for who he said he was. And what's even more interesting is this is John chapter 6, verses 66, 666, right? This is the number of death, and it also happens to be the, the verse of disbelief. That just happens to be a coincidence. There's nothing you can read more into that, but that just happens to be a coincidence. Let me ask you this question. Do you want Jesus for who he is or who you want him to be? You see that? Because what I want to argue is that you have an image of who you want Jesus to be. And yet Jesus, when he says, look, this is who I am. I am the bread of life. We might say, oh, no, 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 no. This doesn't match the image that I have of you in here. So therefore, you can't be real, Jesus. I'm going to reject you. 
The reason why many can't believe in Jesus is because you keep wanting to make Jesus into this nice, cuddly teddy bear that is not threatening, that you can sort of pet and come to when you need comfort, when you need to pray, when you need this and that. Okay, Jesus, yeah, you're great. Uh, you know, you're give me peace in my heart. But, but the other stuff, Jesus, I, I don't really like that about you. Look, think about it like this, right? Wouldn't it be super offensive to try to constantly make someone into something they aren't? Like, think about it when it's been done to you. Let's just say you're a very generous person, but people keep going around saying you're greedy and that you're stingy. Wouldn't that, isn't that very offensive? And in the same way, what we do to Jesus, we put on preconceived notions about him, and then we say, oh, you know, this is who you should be, Jesus. This is who you should be. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 let me be who I am. Let me be me. Look, the reason why the I Am series is so important is because we can't form and shape God into who we want him to be. We have to receive God for who he says he is. Uh, do you remember in the book of Exodus, right, the people of Israel, right, Moses goes up on top of the mountain and he gets the Ten Commandments, right, from, from God on Mount Sinai. And while he's up there, he's up there for quite a long time. And so the people of Israel end up building this thing called the golden calf, right? They tell Aaron, Aaron, make us this golden calf. And so he says, okay, give me the jewelry. He melts the jewelry, makes this golden calf. And then when Moses comes back down, God is just furious at the making of this golden calf. And when I was a kid, I used to think, oh, you know, they were worshiping another god. This is why God got angry. But that's actually not true. The reason why God gets mad is not because they're worshiping another god, friends. The reason why God gets mad is because they try to make an image of God. They're actually worshiping Yahweh. They're actually worshiping God, but they form him into their own image, into this image of a golden calf so that he's more worship, uh, worshipable, if you would. Right? And this is why in the second commandment, the ten commandments, right? Uh, Thou shalt have no other gods before me is the first commandment. But what's the second commandment? Don't make me into an image. Don't make a graven image. And what is God saying there? He's saying, look, don't make my image into into something that you could see or like a craft or like a, like a doll or something. Don't make me into an image. Why? Because what you're doing is you're putting me into a box. You're telling me who I am, but I'm not to be told who I am. I'll tell you who I am. That's what God is saying. And he says, if you try to make an image out of me, what you're doing is you're putting me in a box and you're trying to make me cute and cuddly and, and controllable, but I'm not that. I'm not controllable. I'm not cuddly. Stop doing that to me. And in the same way, this is exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I can't be put in a box. You have to accept me for all of me. You can't just accept the parts that you like. You have to accept all of me and not just the parts that you enjoy. This leads us to our second point, who we want. So let me take some time to drill down on point number one because what I want to do here in the second point is really drill down and get to the presuppositions that we have at Christ, okay, the belief systems that we have about Christ in our hearts that then prevent us from accepting the full Jesus. Okay? So here's, there's really only two things, okay, and here's the first one. You want the gifts more than the giver. You want the gifts more than the giver. Okay, look at verse 23 with, uh, sorry, uh, verse 26 with me. Uh, in this passage, okay? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see that? You're not seeking me. You don't really love me. You want the bread. You want the gifts that I give. You're not seeking me because you want me. You're seeking me because you want peace. Uh, you're not seeking me because... You just want me. You're seeking me because you want that job. Uh, you're not seeking me simply for seeking me, but you're seeking me because you want friends. You want the church to provide all these friends for you, right? 
You know what's interesting to me is, you know what the difference between, uh, there's a really big difference between birds and dogs, okay? Really, really big difference. If you don't know, right, if you give bird breads, uh, sorry, if you give bird bread, right, they'll all come. They'll all come flocking to you. But as soon as the bread stops, they'll all leave, right? Uh, I remember this uh, when, when uh, a, a few years ago, my wife and I visited Hawaii, and we were at the Honolulu Zoo with our son. And, um, you know, there was a big sign in the eating area that said, don't feed the birds, right? But this one family just decided to feed all the birds anyhow. So they took all this bread, started throwing it. And when they started throwing it, all of these birds just came, right? And they were crawling all over the kids. They were crawling all over the husband and the wife. And soon enough, they, they almost had to like shoo the birds away because there were so many. And uh, as soon as the bread dried up though, as soon as they ran out of the bread, okay, all the birds just disappeared. They just ran away. On the other hand, right, if you, ever, if you have a dog or if you own the dog or if you know of a dog, right, what you know is that once you feed a dog, you clothe the dog, you shelter the dog, you give him water, you give him all these things, of course they might come to you initially because of those gifts, but they'll stay with you because they love you. They love the owner. They won't abandon you. In fact, there are many stories where dogs will throw, throw to their own detriment, they'll actually try to save their owners at the detriment of their own lives because they love their owners so much. You know, in the Hebrew, uh, the word for dog is actually Caleb. Uh, so if, you're, if your name is Caleb, I, you know, I'm kind of sorry to say this, but your name actually means dog. That's actually the name of my younger brother. I named my brother Caleb. Uh, and the reason why I thought this was an appropriate name is not only because he resembles the spy uh, back in, back in uh, the book of Numbers and in the book of Joshua as well, uh, but Caleb means dog. And what that, that, that word dog kind of connotates in the Hebrew is this aspect of loyalty. And really what they're getting at when you name your child Caleb is you're saying this person is going to be loyal. They're not going to come to you because of the gifts. They're not going to come to you because of these other things. They're going to come to you because they love you, because they're loyal to you, because they desire you. And that's my question to you. Are you loyal to Christ? Are you a bird or are you a dog? Are you a bird that just comes and you just want the gifts? Or do you love Christ for who he is? I brought up this quote several times in my sermons, but it's such a profound and striking quote from John Piper. Listen to what he says. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And really, friends, the way you answer that question shows whether you are a bird or a dog. Here's a second thing that I think Jesus is really drilling down on here, the presence of something else, right? Here's a second thing. You want an easy Jesus, not a hard Jesus. You want an easy Jesus, not a hard Jesus. Look at me at verse 60 here. This is right after our passage. Uh, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And look, what the, what the disciples here are saying is they're not saying who can literally understand this. They understand what Jesus is saying. They're just saying this is so hard to hear. This is just so incredibly hard to hear, Jesus. And here's the point. Jesus is going to say some difficult things to us. Not difficult in the sense that we can't understand them, difficult in the sense that we don't want to receive them. And, and, and friends, can I tell you, like, this is just me being vulnerable and honest, but there are times when I'm reading through Scripture where I wish that Jesus didn't say certain things because they're hard to receive. 
They're very, very hard to receive. Uh, Jesus and the Bible has views on sexual ethics and sexual purity that go completely against the grain of our society. And, 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 and sometimes, if, if those commands weren't there, well, maybe the gospel would be more palatable to our culture, I, I think, sometimes. And yet they're there, and I have to receive them. Uh, Jesus and the scriptures are abundantly clear that he is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to the Father except through him. There aren't a hundred paths. There's only one path, and that's Jesus Christ himself. And you see, friends, sometimes Jesus is going to tell us difficult, hard things. And Jesus says, look, you have to receive all of me, not just the easy stuff, but the difficult stuff as well. Look, let me ask you this, Ray. Was your best teacher the teacher who told you all the things you wanted to hear? Or was the best teacher in your life the teacher that, that told you all the things you needed to hear? Or was it what you wanted to hear or what you needed to hear that really improved your life is what I'm asking. Or because imagine a teacher who tells a kid who's failing, ah, you'll be all right. You'll grow right out of that laziness. Ah, you, you'll be fine. Don't, don't work any harder. It's okay. You're, you're fine exactly the way you are. Or the teacher who says, look, Johnny, you're failing. You're failing pretty miserably right now, but look, there's hope for you. If you work really hard, I'll be right there with you. If you work really hard, if you put your head down, you work really hard, and, 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 and you follow me, look, you, you can get an A in this class. Right? The first teacher might give the kid what he wants to hear, but the second teacher gives the kid what he needs to hear. And it's the second teacher, friends, that ultimately is what's best for that student. And in the same way, Christ is not what we want, friends, but he's what we need. And what we need, friends, is not a lie. We need the truth, especially in this day and age. Don't we need that? We need the truth more than ever because that's what we need. What we want, friends, sometimes is a lie. But what we need is the truth. And if you're not a Christian here today, look, I want to I make this very clear. Don't investigate Christ on who you want him to be. Investigate Christ on his terms because what Christ is going to give you may not be what you want, but it is what your heart, your soul, your mind, what your whole body needs, friend. It might not be what you want, but it is what you need. Right, and this happens all the time in our marriages, right? Sometimes we, we, we investigate people on our terms, not on their terms. And yet, friends, I'm telling you, investigate Christ on his terms and not on your terms. Uh, look, in my marriage, for example, right, when we get into a fight, when my wife and I get into a fight, sometimes I want her to argue on my terms. But I have to understand that she's her and I'm me. Right? And when we get into arguments, look, I, I go to the thinking side of things. Right? I want to reason my way out of everything. I want to flip over all the stones, all the rocks, and I want to think through everything. Whereas my wife wants to feel her way through the argument. She wants me to understand the way she feels. She wants, uh, she wants to understand the way I feel. And so when my thinking comes into play, sometimes my thinking comes off as cold and detached. It doesn't come off as compassionate and loving. Sometimes my thinking can come off as aggressive to her. And so this is why when I interact with my wife, I have to interact with her on her terms, not on my terms. Right? And this is how we build relationship. And in the same way, Christ is telling you today, don't investigate me on your terms investigate me on my terms because if i am god right and think about it this way if i am god then look i'm not going to make sense to the human mind at times 
right? It's only idols that we craft with our human hands that will make sense to us. But if there is any, indeed an internal, holy, righteous God that is beyond time and space itself, well, of course there are going to be things uh, that, that don't make sense to our sensibilities at times. So get to know Jesus on his terms. And if you're a Christian today, here's my message to you. Received all of Christ, not just a part of him. Okay? He's telling you hard truths today. There are hard truths that you are hearing from him today. Maybe you, know, you want to escape your marriage, and Jesus is saying, stay in your marriage. Maybe it's that you want to run away from your family, but Jesus is saying, stay in your family. Maybe it's you want to run away from your work, but Jesus is saying, stay in your work. Right? Jesus has a hard truth for you today, and you can't just say, oh, Jesus, give me all the peace and comfort that I want, but all the hard stuff take away from me. You have to receive Christ for all he is, Christian. And that means the hard truths as well. So let's move into our final and third point. I am the bread of life. So look, what does Jesus mean that he's the bread of life? What does he mean that we are to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Because these are very, really sort of cannibalistic almost statements, right? And of course, this is not what Jesus meant. Jesus was not trying to say, literally eat his flesh and drink his blood. Uh, but, but what Jesus is getting at with all this eating and drinking of his blood is found in verse 35 at the very beginning. Okay, Look at me at verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever, underline this word, believes in me shall never thirst. You see, he's telling you what he means by I am the bread of life. He says, look, if you, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never be thirsty. I want you to underline believe. That word believe is another major theme in the Gospel of John. Over and over again is this theme, belief, 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 faith, trust, hope, all of these things. Belief is a major, major theme. In fact, John 3, 16, right, is about believing, right? And this is what Jesus means by eating my flesh and drinking my blood. He says, look, what I mean by this is that you have to believe in me. Now, let's break down this word belief a little bit more. In the Greek, this word belief actually means pistuo, okay? And what this word pistuo is getting at is not some intellectual assent. Jesus is not saying when you believe in me, simply intellectually acknowledge that I'm a real person, I'm a real being. What Jesus is saying is this, that word pistuo in the Greek actually means to trust. Trust me. And you see, the difference between belief and trust is simply this, right? Uh, imagine I, I tell my son, right, to stand up on a high table like this one, okay? And I tell him, hey, Josiah, fall backwards, okay? Daddy will catch you. Trust me. And my son says, I believe that you can catch me, but he doesn't trust me, and so he doesn't fall backwards. But you see, if my son believes and he trusts in me, what he'll do then is he'll fall backwards, and he'll allow me to catch him. He'll trust in my power over his life. And in the same way, this is what Jesus is saying. Look, when he, when he says believe in me, he's not just saying intellectually ascend to me. He's saying, look, you have to trust me with all of your heart, your mind, and your soul. You have to trust me, friends. Look, even when it's hard to understand me, even when there are things that don't make sense to you, you have to trust me. You have to trust that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You have to trust me by falling backwards and allowing me to catch you. You see, trust, inherent to trust, are works. Right? If you trust Jesus, your actions will therefore follow that you trust Jesus. I know my sexual ethics don't make sense, but he says, trust me. I know that me being the way, the truth, and the life doesn't make sense, but you have to trust me. 
Now here's the question. How can I trust you, Jesus? How can I trust you, Jesus? Like what evidence is there for me to trust you? And here's the simple yet profound evidence that we have, friends. It's the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ begs you to trust Jesus because what Jesus is saying on the cross, he's saying this, look, I'm not going to use my power to oppress you. I'm not going to use my power to limit you. I'm going to use my power to serve you as a servant. I'm going to use my power to enslave myself on a cross to die for you so that you might have life. This is what I'll use my power for. And look, I'll show it to you in history, in real life. I'll come down as a human being, incarnate, in flesh, and I'll pierce myself upon a cross. I'll die for your sins, your wretchedness, all of the evil that you you committed. I will use my power to die for you on a cross to save you from your sins. And in saving you from your sins, friends, you can trust me that I won't use my power, my authority, my might to oppress you. I'm going to use my power to serve, to submit, to humble, to die for you, and to ultimately liberate you from your sin, from your death, and from everything that curses you, friends. And this is why we can trust Jesus, because the cross is a historical event. It actually happened in time and place and history, friends. And we can trust that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we can trust, friends, that he will catch us when we fall. Look, friends, this is why we will never hunger. This is why we will never thirst because Christ is all that we need in this life. He will save our souls. And on that last day, friends, he will raise us up with him. And friends, this is a God that we can trust. Uh, you know, um, I just want to wrap up with this, but um, you know, I started watching one of my guilty pleasures at night uh, is the show called Cobra Kai. And uh, if you don't know Cobra Kai, it's basically a spin-off TV show on the famous hit movie uh, that came out in the 1980s called The Karate Kid. Uh, and uh, I, I love The Karate Kid, so I started watching Cobra Kai. And because I fell in love with Cobra Kai, I went back and I rewatched Karate Kid Part 1, Part 2, Part 3. And uh, what's fascinating about The Karate Kid is this one interaction that I want to bring out from the movies. Uh, Mr. Miyagi, who's the uh, teacher, the karate teacher in this movie, Daniel LaRusso is the karate kid. He's the one that's learning. Mr. Miyagi comes to Daniel LaRusso and he says this. He says, we make sacred pact. I promise to teach karate. You promise to learn. I say, you do no questions. Okay, so he says that at the very early on in the movie when Daniel LaRusso wants to learn karate from him. And so the following scenes are all about Mr. Uh, Mr. Miyagi now giving Daniel LaRusso these hard tasks. So Daniel LaRusso, for example, has to wash and wax his cars. This is where we get wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off, right? Uh, then he has to, you know, uh, uh, sand his floor, right? The, the floorboards, he has to sand them. And then he makes Daniel LaRusso paint his house. Then he makes Daniel LaRusso paint his fence. And finally, in this climactic scene, Daniel blows up at Mr. Miyagi. And listen to what Daniel LaRusso says. He says, I'm being your slave, man. It's what I'm being. I mean, we made a deal here. So you're supposed to teach and I'm supposed to learn, remember? For four days, I've been busting my butt and I never learned a thing. And then Mr. Miyagi says this, ah, you learned plenty. And then Daniel responds to him, I learned plenty, all right. I learned how to sand your decks, wash your car, paint your house, paint your fence. I learned plenty. To that, Mr. Miyagi finally turns to Daniel and he says, Daniel-san, Daniel-san, 
Show me, wax on, wax off, right? Wax on. And, and all of a sudden, all the pieces come together. And all of a sudden, Daniel LaRusso realizes that Mr. Miyagi was teaching him karate through these different techniques of waxing and painting, right? He said, show me, paint house, up, down, right? And these are different blocking mechanisms and whatnot. And all of a sudden, he realizes that once he thought Mr. Miyagi was this oppressive man, who was trying to force him to, like, almost like a con man, who was trying to get him to do dirty work for him. But then he realizes, he realizes in this moment that Mr. Miyagi is actually a genius, that all along he had this great big plan for him. And I know I just compared Daniel LaRusso to us and Mr. Miyagi to Christ. But friends, this is such a good illustration for us, friends. There are so many things about Christ, friends, that as you investigate Him, as you get to know Him, it might not make sense to you. It might be a hard saying that Jesus has for you. It might be hard and difficult for you to receive the things that Christ has said. And yet, like Mr. Mihagi, friends, we can trust. We can trust Christ because we know Christ's character, that He's not going to use His power to oppress us but that he's gonna use his power to liberate us and to free us. And in the Gospel of John 10, 10, he says, look, I came to give you life and life abundantly. Look, the thief, the, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came to give you life and life abundantly. And friends, even though Christ doesn't make sense at times, even though he's hard to comprehend, even though he's hard to understand, friends, we can trust and know that Christ wants to free us and give us life everlasting. And if this is you today, friends, if you're not a Christian here today and you want to receive Christ, you want to trust Christ, you want to give your life over to Christ today, it's very, very simple. All you have to do is submit your wills, your thought, your body, your mind all over to Christ and say, Christ, I trust you as my Lord and as my Savior. I trust you. I'm going to follow the ways that you've taught me to live. I'm going to trust you. And in fact, I'm going to trust you with my sins. I'm going to repent and confess of my sins. And Lord, as I confess and repent of my sins, I'm going to turn towards you and follow after you. And this is all that it means to follow Christ and to trust in him. It's to repent and to turn and to follow Jesus as both your Lord and as your Savior. And if you did that today, friends, I implore you to click the I commit my life to Jesus button. Friends, it's, it's so simple, but we want to start walking with you. We want to start guiding you through this journey of Christianity. And if you have more courage, please let us know who you are. That button, friends, I, I need to tell you, it, it's anonymous. We don't know who you are. But if you click it again or if you let us know by email who you are, friends, we can start walking with you and guiding you in this walk called Christianity. Let's pray. Our Father, we want to thank you for all of your goodness. Lord, we want to receive you for all that you are. We want to stop telling you who you are, and we want to start hearing from you, Christ, who you are. So Holy Spirit, would you make our hearts alive today? Holy Spirit, would you go to the person who's seeking you right now, and would you open up their hearts, God, to see what it is that you want them to see? Would you make your presence more and more real to them every single day, God, even though we're not in the sanctuary meeting together right now, Lord? Lord, we know that you can make this truth so alive in their hearts, Lord, that it is almost like you, they are touching and feeling you right now. And so, Lord, we ask that your presence would be made real to them in this moment. And Lord, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, Lord, we pray that we would live recklessly in abandonment, Lord, to you. God, we would abandon all things, God, for your glory, Lord, because you are not just a man. You are not just a teacher, but you are divine. You are God himself. And Lord, if you are who you claim to be, God, 
it results in us completely handing our lives over to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us strength now to live out this truth that you are Lord and that you are Savior of our lives. And, Lord, we thank you so much for this time and for this place. We pray this all in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Well, at this time, would you rise as we uh, end this time in the benediction? Uh, if you're unfamiliar with a benediction, uh, a benediction just means a good word. We want you to have hope as you leave your homes, uh, as you leave your workplaces or your offices, wherever you're watching this from. We want you to leave with hope and encouragement. And today, friends, I want you to know this, that even though sometimes Christ doesn't make sense to us, even though we have to receive all of Christ, and even though it's hard, friends, we know without a shadow of a doubt that the cross reveals to us that this God who asks us to trust him first revealed that he would lay down his power and his right to power in order to serve and to love us and to cleanse us of our sins. And friends, that's what I want you to leave here today is that Christ Jesus gave up his power, gave up his life for you so that you could live free and abundantly today. So hear now the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God the Father Almighty and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen.